This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Money and Markets podcast. I'm Dan Coatesworth and joining me today is Danny Hewson. Hello, Dan. I don't think it's going to come as any surprise to anyone that we are kicking off with market reaction to what's been happening in Ukraine, from obviously the soaring oil price to falling share prices, as investors figure out which sectors stand to lose from increased sanctions. Now, also on today's podcast, we'll be assessing the latest financial updates from UK banks. I've been chatting to Neil Shelton from GXO, which is a huge name in global logistics, about all of those supply chain issues that we've heard so much about. How can you make money from music if you're not a talented musician, which I'm certainly not. But Paul Flood from Newton Investment Management has joined me to chat streaming the good, the bad and the row over Joe Rogan. I'll also discuss why house prices have jumped by the biggest amount in over 20 years. And on the subject of savings, Laura Souter catches up with Stephen Holiday from a financial app called Level, who thinks your employer might be able to help you with your savings goals. But first, Dan, I mean, volatility has certainly been the name of the game. Um, you know, since investors really have been keeping their eyes glued to every single news update about the diplomatic effort to prevent tension in the Ukraine escalating. On Monday night, it appeared those efforts had failed as the Russian president ordered troops into rebel-held provinces in Ukraine and the oil price shot up, didn't it just? At one point on Tuesday, over $99 a barrel. Lots of analysts now reckoning that it could well head over $120 a barrel. And it, it, you know, it's hard to remember that it's not that long ago when we were talking about $20 a barrel. So these prices are just incredible. And Aside from looking at markets' reaction to all of this, the price at the petrol pump on Sunday had already hit a record £1.49 a litre. Um, it is expected to top £1.50 a litre before the end of the week. But, you know, as Europe and the United States implement tough new sanctions, which are designed to really isolate Russia from the Western banking system, cut off some of its key gas market and punish some of those oligarchs who are Putin friendly, um, it, it just doesn't look like the volatility is going to end any time soon. And, you know, it will continue really to dominate market sentiment very much, at least in the near term. It was interesting because although we had huge sell-offs on Tuesday, the FTSE 100 didn't do too badly. And actually what we're seeing today as investors look at the sanctions and decide that maybe they aren't quite as as hard hitting as some people had thought. There's been something of a thawing and markets have certainly recovered quite a bit today. But just thinking through some of those companies, some of those sectors that will be hit, you know, the likes of BP, Shell and Steel and Mining Company, Everaz, gold miner, Petro Pavlovsk, they've seen shares plunge up and down, volatile, as I say. Travel stocks were hurt very badly again on Tuesday, particularly Wizz Air, because that has a big focus on Eastern Europe. And, you know, 
There's lots of talk about the escalating conflict potentially causing some real problems to some countries. And I'm thinking particularly of Germany. Um, lots of people saying that you know this could push Germany into recession. And it gives central banks a really difficult uh, line to, to walk because they're trying to deal with inflation whilst at the same time preventing some parts of Europe particularly from flatlining. Now, if you're just thinking about your portfolio, the, the message really is just keep calm and carry on. If it's diversified, then, you know, you can't game the market. And history shows us that, that markets do recover. But you can sort of have a, a good thought about some of the companies which might be impacted. So, you know, stocks with a real exposure to Russia and Ukraine. I'm thinking about companies like Carlsberg and Coca-Cola. They sell a lot of their products in Russia, as does France's food giant Danone. And, and you've also uh, obviously got some companies that have a huge workforce in the Ukraine. So France's video gaming company Ubisoft has a big workforce in the Ukraine. But investors, I think, are just sort of waiting for the next move and we hear one thing coming out of Russia then you know we hear something else coming out of the United States and it's very difficult at the moment really for investors to to get a handle on what is going on from one day to the next. Yeah I think it's probably worth just pointing out we're recording this on Wednesday the 23rd of February and of course by the time you get to listen to this episode something might have changed. We, we just don't know. So it was obviously we, we're just all basing this on where we are now. But I think overall, it's a, it's a bit of an odd situation because, you know, if you think that we've had inflation and interest rate shocks already this year, so if you pile on top the threat of war, I would have expected the stock market to have undergone a much bigger correction than it has done. Uh, you know, just looking at some of these figures, like, Germany's DAX index is down 7% this year. And the S&P 500 in the US is down 10%. But the FTSE 100 is um, you know, it's just up you know, only a small bit, 0.4%. But it's sort of held, held firm. And I think that you might have some investors looking at their portfolio, particularly if they are heavily in UK stocks, and think, well, you know, all things considered, and sort of coming at this quite well. But I think you know, you're right, Nanny. You need to um, take a look at what you own now. Assess your current level of risk. Are you happy with what you've got? Um, and otherwise, just sit tight. And you know, one of the best things is is just not look at your portfolio every five minutes. I mean, there's a lot of noise in the background at the moment about lots of headwinds and stuff. But you know, investing is all about staying focused and disciplined. Um, you know, and just sort of time in the markets is better than time in the market. So you know, stick with it if you can. I think is the message. Yeah, I mean, it, that is true at any time, but particularly now, because there is such an incredible amount of volatility. I mean, if you just think about particularly where the US stock market was back in November and compare it where it was at the end of January, you know, investors, if they'd been keeping a close watch on things, you can imagine that there was, at some points, um, a, a sort of real feeling of, of panic and maybe, you know, thinking that people should be getting rid of some of the, the badly performing stocks. But, you know, as we know, what goes down can go back up again, and people just need to be aware of the bigger picture. But of course, 
sometimes when you're talking about conflict with Russia, that bigger picture can be quite difficult to see. Um, We could spend the whole episode talking about this, but we do have a really packed pod today. Uh, Before we move on from markets, though, Dan, we've had updates from a number of high street banks and the numbers, they've been good. Yeah, I mean, you'd think that banks would be sitting pretty, rubbing their hands and sort of smiling and interest rates go up because, you know, in this environment, they can make bigger net interest margins, which is the difference between what they charge on loans and what they pay out on savings deposits. But actually, you know, just looking at the numbers of all the banks who reported by the time we record this podcast, um, there are sort of suggestions that life isn't going to be sort of particularly easy going forward. If we start off with NatWest, it swung back into profit, certainly helped by the UK economy recovering and and a healthy housing market as well. Because remember, a lot of this business comes from mortgages. Um, but of course, there's, there is some sort of sign that home buying might be slowing down. And I wonder whether its mortgage business may struggle to keep growing at sort of the current rates. Um, with HSBC, it doubled its annual profit, but it's suffering from various issues in China. One is that they've got really tough COVID measures there, which is sort of um, having a negative impact on the economy in Hong Kong. And there's also this growing real estate crisis. And I think HSBC is sort of bracing itself for some more defaults here. Barclays' profit more than quadrupled in the fourth quarter of 2021, um, did really well in its investment banking arm. Um, it also released some more reserves that were set aside to cover potential loan losses relating to COVID. Now, Lloyd's hadn't issued its numbers by the time we were recording this, but um, there was one thing that caught my eye, and it's not a new thing, but it just, it's just a reminder about what's happening in the banking sector, is that NatWest is going to close another 32 bank branches. Now, it's interesting, because I was talking to my parents the other day, and they were sort of saying that they're really lucky that they can do all their banking at their local post office. They don't do online banking. They're too afraid of it. All the bank branches where they live have all closed down. So I just wonder whether people like NatWest, are, you know, I hope that they're not forgetting that there is still a chunk of their customer base which relies on physical branches. And I think it would be a real shame to see all branches close down you know, over the sort of, say, next five or 10 years. What's been quite interesting uh, as well um, to note about the the coverage of all these banking results is the amount of headlines which have picked up on the huge bonuses being paid. Uh, The arguments, obviously, from the banks is that in order to make big money, they have to spend big money to attract and keep talent because, you know, the labour market is incredibly tight. Uh, And what we were hearing certainly from uh, HSBC is that in Asia, where they're trying to attract banking banking staff, bankers, and also technical staff, they're having to pay the amount that other banks are willing to pay, otherwise that they just uh, don't don't get a look in. So um, you know I know that there have been huge headlines devoted to it, but but that is certainly the argument. Um, while we're talking big profits and dividends, it's also worth a mention of Rio Tinto. Yeah, I mean, it's been a great time to be invested in Rio Tinto. So this is a FTSE 100 mining company, and it's just said, you know, if you add up all the dividends it's declared for 2021, they add up to $16.8 billion. 
I mean, that is just, you, know, you, you rarely see figures like this. You know, we, we saw Shell. 16.8 billion. Yeah. That's a big number. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you go, go back to Shell in 2018, it paid out $15.7 billion. Um, you know, these are, these are just gigantic numbers. Apple has got this reputation for being very generous with, you know, the amount it pays out. It's got it's swimming in cash as a business. Um, if you sort of look at the current run rate for its quarter dividends, it looks like it's going to be paying around $14.5 billion uh, in, on an annual basis in dividends. But, um, you know, mining, mining, you know, Rio Tinto has just done so well. And one of the things here is that it's been flattered a bit by special dividends, which are one-off payments, like a bonus payment on top of your ordinary dividend. And you only see these when something's gone very right for a business or they've sold a big operation. They just want to return some of those proceeds to shareholders. So I think with Rio, it's, it's, it's seen record iron ore prices, very strong demand for aluminium and copper. But you know, if there are headwinds for the global economy, um, you, know, you just all sort of think, okay, maybe near term, um, perhaps don't expect these very, very generous dividends every year. Um, but you know, it just shows what the mining sector's done. They've in the last sort of ten years, they've stopped making these very expensive acquisitions. They've streamlined their businesses, and of course, they're now reaping the benefits of being very lean, mean, keen businesses. And shareholders are sort of collecting lots of cash. So, um, quite interesting place to look at for the moment. Yeah, it certainly is. And I'm not playing tiddlywinks, Dan, uh, just in case you can hear some funny noises. My cat has just come out from under the table and decided <laughs> that he's going to eat a whole load of biscuits very loudly. So apologies if you're hearing something peculiar. That is the noise. <laughs> But that's what working from home does to you. Um, I, I want to touch on the latest FTSE reshuffle details. Who's up? Who's down? Yeah, so the, the, the index provider FTSE Russell has put out sort of the indicative changes. Now, these, are, these aren't the final ones. We won't know exactly who's going to be going in or out of the FTSE 100 or FTSE 250 indices until the close of the market close on the 2nd of March. But for now, this is like the best uh, sort of indication of what will happen. So it looks like EasyJet is going to be promoted into the FTSE 100 and Decra Pharmaceuticals will be kicked out and moved to the FTSE 250. Being promoted into the 250 from a lower indices is Clipper Logistics, which has just had a big takeover offer, Restaurant Group, which owns Wagamama. And then we've got people like um, Temple Bar, which is one of these um, sort of value-tilted investment trusts. Um, and then it looks like in the FTSE 250, the ones that will be kicked out because their share price and that market valuation has fallen so much would be Cineworld, um, NCC and Trustpilot, uh, fairly recent to the stock market. So that's you know perhaps a, a disappointment for him. But say we'll get those final changes confirmed by FTSE Russell on the 2nd of March. Supply chain problems caused a big headache for a lot of companies, still causing havoc for a lot of companies now. Uh, so we thought it was worth getting an expert on the podcast to update us on the situation, see if there had been any improvements recently. American company GXO is one of the big names in the global logistics sector and works with companies like Nestle, BT and Electrolux. 
Earlier this week, it made a £1 billion takeover approach for London-listed Clipper Logistics. Dan mentioned them just then. And while it wasn't able to discuss that potential offer for legal reasons, Dan was lucky enough to get some time with the Chief Strategy Officer, Neil Shelton, to talk about the bigger picture. Let's hear what he had to say. So, Neil, thank you very much for coming on the show. Let's start with the big question. Have the supply chain bottlenecks finally started to ease? Yes, we feel like we're past uh, the nadir. Um, It it certainly has been a situation for many customers that they've been dealing with, should we say, somewhat less predictable supply chains now for many, many months. And there's no signs of things uh, getting worse. And arguably, we can see signs uh, of improvement. And Dan, what it's really meant is that supply chain challenges for customers or indeed potential customers has been arriving less predictably in warehouses. And what we've seen from customers is they've reacted by ordering earlier than is typically the case, and also really seeking to speed their products into the hands of their consumers. This has meant a much greater focus on e-commerce or direct-to-consumer activity. So does that, does that sort of um, suggest if, if customers have been sort of very proactive in making sure they've got enough stock, have they actually sort of now sitting on too much inventory and, and potentially having to sort of sell some at a discounted price to, to perhaps make way for the next season's products if they're something like a fashion retailer and, and they have sort of seasonality to their business? Uh, no, I mean, what we're seeing on the e-commerce side is, is a, a massive increase in the velocity of our solutions. Um, let me give you a, a, a couple of data points. I was up at a, an e-commerce site that we run for a, a global blue chip consumer brand. It's just north of... London and in the couple of years that we've been operating that site and in this environment of should we say supply chain uncertainty what we've helped that customer to do is actually quite the opposite we've reduced the inventory uh, SKU by just over 40 percent so if you like reducing that end of season discounting ability on a much reduced volume of stock we also uh, for another uh, this is a UK based uh, customer that is moving much more rapidly into e-commerce, we, they had a trading update very recently. And, and they highlighted that, that over the two years that we, we've been running their e-commerce solutions, the percentage of full price sales coming through has risen by between 40 and 50%. And the percentage of out-of-season discounted sales had dropped by 20 to 30%. So what we're able to do, Dan, is, is to, if you like, offer predictability to speed up the velocity of stock moving through the warehouse and notably out into that e-commerce channel to ensure the consumer gets their hands on the product more rapidly and that our customers aren't left with that situation of having too much stock uh, at the end uh, of a season. So that velocity improvement for this customer will have driven hundreds, if not thousands of basis points of gross margin improvement and that allows them to reinvest back into marketing into a better consumer delivery proposition uh, or even in pricing where they choose to do so what do you think that the uh, sort of the pandemic and the supply chain issues that we've seen have sort of prompted um companies such as you know consumer branded companies particularly and, and retailers to to rethink where they want their sort of uh inventory held in over the years we've seen lots of people sort of um, you know manufacturing stuff overseas and just bring it in when they need it but now are they sort of realizing that they need to store way way more than they used to 
really close to where the end customer is so that there isn't this supply chain risk uh, like we've seen in, in sort of recent months and, and over the past year. Yes, I mean, that, that effectively raises, uh, if like, there's two points to really focus on with, with regards to this. Um, firstly, we are seeing a continued shift into that e-commerce channel. And, and Dan, I'm sure you, like many others uh, as consumers, if we're not getting the product through whatever app it may be on the same day or the next day, then there's a very high chance that you're probably moving on to the next uh, uh, retailer or indeed to the next product. And that is requiring, as you highlighted, more inventory close to large consumer markets. Um, there is, in, in many instances, you're just not physically able to travel the distances to fulfill an order under such a, a timetable. Uh, and without question, what you're seeing is, is more companies put more product lines close to that in consumers. So if I go back to the e-commerce solution just outside of London that we've been operating for uh, this consumer-focused brand, um, that's been operating with around 140,000 SKUs. It will move up towards quarter of a million SKUs, but we'll be holding broadly the level of inventory at the same amount. So if you like, not necessarily more stock held within the, within the uh, warehouse environment, but certainly a much broader range uh, of SKUs, allowing a better consumer proposition. And ultimately that's, that's key because warehousing, it does drive a really significant consumer reaction. For this direct consumer brand company, we've driven a 45% improvement in their UK net promoter score since starting and operating their e-commerce activities. And that includes yeah, fulfilling same day in many instances for London and next day delivery, but also processing of returns where we're able to get the consumer credit back the next day, which uh, is increasingly important in an environment uh, where e-commerce channel shift continues. I think just for the purposes of our listeners who may not know some of the sort of the, 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 sort of the terminology for this industry, could you just quickly explain what an SKU is, please? Uh, it's, it's basically an individual product. So you may have a white T-shirt. It may be available in five or six different sizes. Each one of those will be a single product or an SKU. Well, Neil Shelton from GXO, thank you very much for joining us. Let's move on. Talk a little bit about music. Now, are you a big streamer, Dan? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I I, I still buy lots of records. Um, I'm one of these people who's, I've bought it ever since I was a sort of a teenage kid. Um, my house is just full of vinyl, but um, so I haven't sort of been jumping on the bandwagon. But um, I, I think, you know, streaming is very much... Um, you know where people listen now, and I think investors have been looking hard at this space as well. And there's one company on the stock market uh, which has been catching people's eye, and that's, that's, a, that's it's sort of a little known company called Audio Boom. But certainly, its name's getting out there because it's in the middle of what looks like a bidding war. Now, there's been lots of speculation that the likes of Spotify, Amazon, Sony, and even Virgin Media. Um, owner Liberty Global is, is sort of all looking at this business. And now I think podcast listener numbers have boomed since the pandemic. Uh, and and there's, there is now money to be made in this space. 
There's also potentially quite a lot of trouble if things go wrong, and Spotify has certainly felt all of that. A big row over one of its rather infamous and outspoken podcast hosts, Joe Rogan, which has resulted in a number of artists, including Neil Young and Joni Mitchell, demanding that their songs are taken off the platform, and interestingly, gaining fans as a result. It is an absolutely fascinating space and one that Paul Flood from Newton Investment Management knows an awful lot about. He's portfolio manager of the BMY Mellon Multi-Asset Diversified Return Fund and the Multi-Asset Income Fund from the same stable, and I caught up with him last week. You have been very vocal about the attractions of music royalties, and you're one of the largest investors in hypnosis songs. Is that how you pronounce it? That's correct, yes. Excellent. Um, Large weight in your funds. So what was it that got you interested in music royalties? Well, it was really, uh, you know, five years ago, um, or five or six years ago, when you've seen things start to change um, and inflect from where a period of time uh, where you see significant declines in CD sales, um, you know, obviously with Napster, etc., pirating of music. Um, and you started to see that turn around and, and the music streaming started to become a larger part of the overall pie um, and drive drive more of the growth um, for the, the music industry revenue streams. Um, and, you know, hypnosis songs came to the market um, uh, and really offers a predictable, reliable income. Um, and, you know, one listens to songs during good times or in bad times. And we really come out of, you know, 16 years worth of technological disruption, as I mentioned with Napster, um, which meant that, you know, people just consumed music for free. Um, and that had a, a big impact in the music industry, whereas the growth of the market now is really being driven by the likes of Spotify and Apple coming through um, and giving us the perfect vehicle as consumers to listen to music. Um, and you know, over the last you know five or six years, the, the industry has got music streaming um, is grown from about thirty million paid subscribers um, in the US to over five hundred million, um, and it's predicted by by some of the investment banks like Goldman Sachs um, to be at two billion paid subscribers by the end of the decade. Now, obviously, not you know two billion individual subscribers, but some people um, will have both Apple and Spotify um, or or uh, Amazon Prime, for example. And so it's really gone from that kind of discretionary um, music par- uh, purchase of an individual CD to, uh, sorry, a discretionary a luxury purchase to being you know, much more of a utility given how, uh, how much of a value proposition it is for consumers at, at £10 or $10 per month. So it's really that convenience and consistency in revenues that's, that's really attractive to us alongside that kind of growth trajectories we move away from music piracy to people you know can't be bothered to download it and and uh, get onto one of these websites to to pirate the music um when when it's so cheap to consume um in the method that the streaming services provide i mean it certainly boomed um during lockdown because you you, you couldn't get out to see a gig do you think that it will drop off now that people have other ways of consuming music well, I don't think so. Um, you know, there are far more people streaming music than going to concerts. It's like 10 to 1 if you compare today's global paid subscribers, you know, 500 million or so um, versus you know, about 50, 60 million people um, that go to concerts through the you know, total global ticket sales in, in 2019. 
Um, so, you know, for us, you know, I don't think that's a case. And, you know, also when you think about it, you go to the concert and then you want to listen to the music. So it kind of, that kind of reinforces the, the, the streaming of the music. Um, so it kind of, you know, live music and streaming go hand in hand. Um, and so I think that that really benefits the, the music streaming industry, because if you go to the live gig, people then want to stream the original songs, not just the one of, you know, the song that they've heard that's a cover of a, a song, but also the back catalogue as well. And that's what's really interesting to us is the back catalogue, how stable that is. Um, you know, the, the biggest hits will always remain the biggest hits and will continue to be to be listened to and people um, will uh, do copies or not copies, but um, uh, covers of, of original music and owning the, the music royalties, the copyrights, uh, you continue to get royalties from those cover musics uh, as well. Um, and then you think about, you know, engagement through TikTok, um, where you've now reached uh, 1.2 million subscribers and consumers, you know, hear and see what they uh, see on TikTok. And then they use YouTube or a streaming service to engage with the, the music more. So I think that's what we we think uh, is one of the reasons why when you go back to, to people going to gigs, uh, we don't think streaming follows off. But, it, you know, also going back to gigs, well, you know, music royalties earn a bigger share of that touring revenue. The artists earn more from the touring revenue than they do currently from the streaming. So. Um, it's actually adds to that little bit of growth that's been lost over the pandemic. Who has the power, the artists or the platforms, do you think? Well, for us, you know, we would, uh, we would definitely say um, that, that content is king. Um, and, you know, I do believe that that's the case. And we've seen that um, with, you know, Spotify um, and uh, you know, Neil Young um, uh, saga, uh, with Joe Rogan, where you know it's you know it's a fairly uh, large statement to say you can have Young or you can have Rogan, but you can't have both. But what we saw out of that um, was quite a significant increase in the number of people um, that were visiting Spotify's uh, cancellation page, um, and so uh, that clearly shows that that people that like listen to to Neil Young. Um, want to listen to him and, and will follow him through. So if the music's not on the platform, um, then people will go to where that music is. Um, and I think that's what, what we're really seeing. And if you look at the cancellation numbers, I mean, just at the end of the last week of January, um, it was a, a rise of 200% in web visits to their cancellation page um, following that saga. Uh, so How for us... It, do you think it will be? Because obviously it's raised the question as, as to whether or not... Um, these platforms are publishers or not? Well, you know, it's clearly disruptive um, because you've seen, uh, you know, a lot more people listening to Neil Young's song. So his, his consumption actually increased <laughs> quite significantly. Um, and people were willing to switch streaming services to continue to listen to, to Neil Young. So it is quite disruptive. And that's why we think the power um, really is, is the content and not the platform. Um, and, you know, obviously, you know, we don't think, um, you know, Spotify is a publisher. It's more of a, a store where you go to uh, to get things. But clearly there's a discussion to be had when you pay somebody to create content for you. So there is a bit of a blurry line and they, do, they will need to be careful with, with that. It's very different to someone using a platform to view content that somebody else has created um, to when the platform's paid somebody to create content for them. You know, that could be viewed very differently. 
Do you think we'll get more of that? Because obviously with, with streaming services in terms of, you know, TV and film, we're seeing Netflix and Disney battling it out to produce that kind of content that you say is king to get eyes on their streaming services. And what we've seen with Spotify, obviously, is them engaging with Joe Rogan again to get more ears listening to their product. Do you think we'll see more of that? Well, definitely, yeah. I mean, for music, you know, the streaming platforms pay at 70% of the revenues to the copyright owners. Um, and so there's a lot of long-term operating leverage um, with the, the royalties, but not really um, with the, 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 the Spotify's of the world, because it's fairly limited because you have that 70% payout ratio. Whereas other forms of content, such as podcasts, um, you know, can have lower associated costs um, and can drive the profitability in the long run better for Spotify um, and the streaming platforms. So they are trying to do this um, by focusing on uh, uh, podcasts. Um, and then they can argue um, uh, for paying a lower share of the revenues to the, the copyright, uh, copyright owners. But for us, you know, we just see the overall pie of, of the industry growing as a whole. So, you know, we will see these relationships between streaming platforms and labels. Um, you know, we see it symbiotic. It can change over time. Uh, but they both rely on each other to grow consumer engagement and, and revenues for the whole industry. Uh, we don't think that, you know, the streaming platforms will compete directly with the record labels. And, you know, uh, Daniel Ek um, has said that publicly um, during our earnings calls that he doesn't have any interest in becoming a label. Um, but, you know, on the opposite side, you know, it's entirely possible that you could see the future of big music companies, including, um, you know, companies like Hypnosis that have these catalogues. Um, to have non-exclusive streaming services, much the same as, you know, Neil Young um, has Neil Young archives or, you know, similar to Disney Plus, you know, Paramount or the HBO apps. Are we getting to a point where we've got too many of these services? I mean, certainly in terms of um, that sort of TV and, and film, we're having the likes of uh, Amazon, Netflix, Apple, Disney, all now sort of looking at, how to bring things together in bundles. So you've got music, you've got video content, you've got gaming content. Will we get to a point where maybe everything is just provided by a couple of people? Um, well, I think it's, you know, it's going to be more com com competitive. Um, and, you know, all of this is, you know, it's a really important feature. Um, because once people are on their platform, they realize um, that whether you listen to eight hours of music a day or less, at some point you want to watch something else, the news or whatever else. Um, so it's important to have them all on uh, your service. Um, and it's much the same with Spotify and podcasts. Um, but, you know, consumers continue to want that content and whether it's music or TV, um, you know, it's the same as when people were sitting watching cable. We just consuming this content in a, in a different way than we used to through through the uh, through the internet rather than um, through the, the TV or the cable uh, or satellite. Investors thinking about long-term growth um, might be considering what happened just recently with Amazon and Prime and the shares went up because they'd put up the Prime subscription. If people have two or three subscriptions and subscriptions start getting more and more expensive, particularly when they're feeling the squeeze elsewhere, something will have to give. 
Do you think we're going to see more price rises? Do you think, how is that competition going to flourish? Well, I think that, you know, that's, you're entirely right. If you've got all these different streaming services, I think, uh, and, and the squeeze um, through inflation is, is, is difficult, then people will cut, you know, individual things. But I think that's what's different to music about TV um, is when you watch a movie, you know, you watch it one weekend, maybe, you know, you watch it twice uh, and maybe you watch it in five years time. Uh, but what people tend to do um, with music is you, you end up listening to the same music over and over because, you know, it takes you back to a place when you were young. Um, it takes you back to a place when you're happy or when you're sad. Um, whereas the uh, creators of films and content um, for, for, I guess, the, the movie streaming platforms have to continually invest um, and create new content to keep people on, on board. Um, now, obviously, you've got lots of different video streaming platforms. And so I think that will be um, the things that people uh, are likely to cut first. Um, as we saw with the pandemic, you know, people would rather um, bite their right arm off than, than give their, their music uh, streaming up. Um, so we think that, you know, music streaming, there's a place for it, whether people have one, two, uh, music streaming platforms, I think you're not going to have um, three or four of them like you might do with movies. So I think the movies will probably be the one where you you cut your Amazon Prime or, or your Netflix first um, or your Disney um, uh, uh, before you, you cut off the music streaming. Talking about price pressure, do you think that now gigs are back? It takes the pressure off platforms a bit because... We've had this big debate about how much money should go to an artist, but now they'll have another revenue stream again. No, I don't think so. Um, you know, there is a lot of pressure coming through from from these companies such as Hypnosis, um, who have acquired these these large catalogues of music, um, and they are fighting to bring everyone's attention uh, that the songwriters are not being fairly or equitably paid, um, and they continue to lobby and advocate for that. Um, and we expect that to be to continue for some time. You know, even a small ch- uh, split in the change in revenues from streaming has a big impact on the royalties that the artists receive, given how low their current take of streaming currently is. Um, and that's one of the reasons we like playing the music streaming um, through companies like Hypnosis Songs, um, because you've got that opportunity for the royalties to change a little bit, which will have a significant impact on your on your revenue streams. You've got the opportunity for, you know, we've not even talked about emerging markets and, you know, the, the growth of, of uh, music streaming over there um, and the pricing power um, that these, these um, uh, platforms have, like Spotify or Apple Music. You're only paying $10 uh, a month to have access to, you know, a huge number of songs. And it stayed like that for the last decade. Um, so I think these, these companies do have um, price and power uh, and will be able to, to raise prices uh, as, as inflation picks up um, because that you know, unit cost of music consumption is, is extremely low relative to other forms of entertainment. And we've seen you know, Netflix has been able to do it. Um, uh, and you know, when, you, when you look at the overall music industry pie, you know, it's returned to growth in recent years but, you know, the multi-year decline from piracy means that in real terms, revenues in 2020 were still nearly 40% below the levels that we saw in 2001. Um, so people are paying significantly less today 
um, than they have done in the past for, for listening to music. And we just see that as we see streaming proliferate into emerging markets um, and other places, uh, there's, there's a strong opportunity for, for many ways for the music royalties um, to generate, uh, you know, the growth that we see ahead of them. And when you look at, you know, even the United States today, uh, you know, music streaming is about 35% of the population in 2020. Um, and when you look at Sweden, which is, you know, the home of music, uh, music streaming, you know, it's 55% of the population. Um, and on a global basis, um, streaming penetration is, is still only 5%. Um, so there is a, a long runway um, for, for the industry to, to continue to grow revenues and, and add subscribers. So for investors looking at this, just finally, what do you think are the biggest opportunities and also the biggest danger points? Well, certainly, you know, obviously the biggest, the biggest danger points, if you're looking at the back catalogue um, of music royalties, which is, you know, where music uh, uh, within hypnosis would be. Um, is the risk that there's just this really easy ability to create your own music um, and put it onto Spotify. So there's obviously there's more songs being created every year than there has been um, in, in previous years. And so there is a risk of, of dilution um, that people listen to the new music more and they listen to the back catalogues less. But you know, we just, from the data that we've looked at, we just don't see that happening. It's actually going in the opposite direction. Um, people are listening to the, the older music more and we're seeing you know, more covers um, of music. So I think you know, that's, that would be one of the risks. Um, the other risk, of course, um, uh, would be if people did start cutting their, their music streaming uh, services um, or there was a price war. Um, uh, that would obviously lead to, to a decay. But given what we've just previously, previously said about the unit cost of, of music, we think that's extremely unlikely. Um, and continue to believe that, you know, at some point there will be uh, a rebalancing of, of the, the economics within streaming that will favour um, the artists or the, the copyright owner, uh, owners of uh, music royalties. Paul, it's been brilliant to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. It's been wonderful to be on. Let's talk house prices now. Yeah, this is a really interesting one because you would have thought when interest rates are rising, it might have cooled the housing market. But actually, every indication is that that hasn't happened. The housing market is still on fire so far in 2022. Last month saw a huge rise in the price tag of a home, according to property listing giant Rightmove, up nearly £8,000 in a month. Now, that's a record for the 20 years that it's been reporting figures. And an average price now, can you believe this, Dan? It is £348,804. That's 40000 more than it was when the pandemic started. And well, that's jumped if up you think loads, about, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, if you think about how much it had risen the previous two years, just 9000 40000 I mean, nice. that is a huge amount. You, sort of feel, you do feel sorry for people trying to get on the housing ladder. You, and we, we hear it all the time, but... Um, yeah, this is the speed at which that's going up is, um, yeah, that is definitely making life hard for, for people trying to sort of, uh, you know, buy those, you know, the keys to the first home, isn't it? So, yeah, absolutely. And, um, the, the big rise has come from those so called second steppers, so people that have 
are now ready to move on from their first home, whether it's because of lifestyle choices or because, you know, they need a bit more space. Maybe they need an office. Uh, and in some cases now people are perhaps looking to go back to major cities like London because um, the return to the office is, is very much underway or, you know, at least within a comfortable commuting distance. But there's also this added thing which has been around for years. You know, there is a shortage of available stock. And what's happening is people are really frightened that they're going to miss out on buying their dream home. So they see it and they're just willing to pay for it. And, you know, that is despite the fact that we've got the cost of living affecting many people's finances. And as you said, particularly first time buyers, you know, they are really going to struggle but the number of people requesting a home valuation is also up 11% in January compared to last year. So that just suggests that we haven't seen, you know, the, the end of it yet, that we are still going to see those house prices keep ticking up, particularly because, of course, spring is known as home moving season. But before we move on to talk about savings, I just wanted to mention that Laura Souter and I also host another podcast called Money Matters. It's got a real female focus, but our next episode in particular has some really useful information about dealing with the cost of living crunch, which is impacting us all. We talk mortgages, interest rate hikes, energy price hikes, dealing with debt, budgeting, and also some issues particularly affecting younger people. You can find it wherever you get this podcast. Just hunt up AJ Bell Money Matters. And that episode is out on Monday the 28th. Great. I should certainly give that a listen. So um, on the subject of savings, one of the biggest challenges facing the UK is that people just haven't squirreled away enough cash. So Laura Such has been chatting to Stephen Holiday, who is the boss of Financial App Level. And he thinks he's got some answers that could potentially solve this savings crisis and it can involve your employer. So we all know that too few people have savings in the UK. So some data that the financial regulator, the FCA, found before the pandemic found that about 45% of adults, which equates to about 24 million people, wouldn't be able to cover their living expenses for three months if they lost their income. But Stephen Holiday, who is founder of Level, a financial app, has some ideas on how we can help to solve that crisis. So Stephen, thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me on, Laura. So you have a great theory and way to solve the nation's savings crisis. Go, tell us. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so what we do at um, Level Financial Technologies, our, our mission is to make pay go further. We want to empower and enable workers to be better custodians of the pay they receive. And how we do that is we offer a suite of services. We let them access their pay on demand. We give them access to the latest cutting edge open banking power budgeting tools. And of relevance to today's discussion is we allow workers to save money directly from payroll every month. And this is really designed to get people into the habit of saving because um, financial health, like physical health, is much a, a habit more than anything so you simply sign up and say i want to save 30 pounds a month and then after that 30 pounds a month will automatically come out of your um pay packet into a high interest bank account 
Okay. And so the kind of the old adage of savings is that as soon as you get paid, you should transfer that money into a savings account so that you can't touch it and you don't miss it. But I guess um, what you're suggesting goes one step further. And actually, rather than even getting that money, it goes straight from um, your pay into that account. Yeah. And that that money is... um... It is instant access money. You know, obviously the whole point of having a savings pot for a rainy day is, you know, some days it does rain, but it is a kind of set and forget. um, And it will automatically go out and just build in the background without you having to take any action beyond the um, initial setup of the account. And so it's kind of getting employers a bit more involved in your savings. And obviously, employers are very linked to pensions at the moment um, already. Uh, Lots of people get a pension scheme through work and their employer will contribute to it. Do you see that this could potentially become a bit like that? And some employers might choose to offer incentives for their employees to save as well? Yeah, I think that's the kind of strong parallel that... um, workplace pension schemes and um, auto-enrollment have kind of addressed that long-term savings channel um, challenge. But similarly, you know, if you look at your bank statement any given month, you know, there's lots of money going out. There's only tends to be one or two pieces of money going in. And principally, that is from um, your employer. So they are uniquely positioned to help. And it does lead into the kind of wider um, topic that employers increasingly want to help that financial well-being is a mandate they um they want to take on really as a subset of mental well-being at work which is increasingly an important topic so you know if your staff are less financially stressed they will be happier more productive and it all fits into um corporate social responsibility type agendas are there any kind of perils of putting more emphasis on employers to help staff save? It feels like there's obviously we've got the parallel with pensions there, but there's is there potentially a creep that your employer then gets involved in lots of different aspects of your life? Um, that we, we we find when we roll these things out, you know, it, employees are very sharp to you know, will my employer see this? You know, they're very concerned around privacy, but I think it's. It's more that employers are uniquely positioned to help people get in a savings habit, to encourage it that when you join an organization, um, you know, fresh out of school, start saving £10 a month, move that up every time you get a pay rise or a promotion, um, that they can help you form that habit. And I don't really see any great downside to having a positive savings habit. It's very much a kind of moral absolute. Then there are these kind of nudge tactics, aren't there, to, to encourage more people to save. What are some of those? Um, can you talk us through some of those? Some of those kind of behavioural finance aspects that encourage people to get into the savings habit. Yeah, it's a good question. Obviously, it's garnered a lot of interest because ultimately, pension auto enrolment really is a behavioural science nudge tactic of the default option becoming the option that everyone takes. So there's um. There's things we've done both in terms of the communications and also in the design um, of the product. So um, there's a big report coming out of this from BIT in about a month's time. So I don't want to sort of pre-preview it too much. But one of them is in the communication to make it sound like a soft default. Like we've set up an account for you to make it feel easier and more normal for someone to, um, to do this. But also in the way in which we designed our product, one of the key innovations we put in is a um, pre-commitment mechanic. So one of the challenges 
you have in encouraging people to save money is if someone saves £50, they feel like they've got £50 less in their paycheck. They feel like they've almost lost £50, but they still want to do it, you know, in the same way that, you know, you might want to lose weight, but you might want to go out for a meal and a lot of drinks on a Friday night. So the pre-commitment mechanic allows a user to sign up to our service and say, I will start saving £50 from next month. Because then they feel like they are doing good for themselves, but they don't feel that immediate loss of utility. A month later, that savings happens automatically um, and the user's got into that positive habit. And obviously at the moment, we're, the headlines are filled with the cost of living crisis, with costs going up, um, lots of talk of people um, getting into even more debt just to meet their kind of basic bills. Um, so what what can be done to help those people? So I guess the people that, financially aren't necessarily in a position to even put away 50 pounds a month but want to get into better um, financial habits i think the first part i would encourage them with our services we have no minimum amount to save i think just having a habit and starting getting into that cadence of doing it is um is the first part to um to address the challenge and obviously if you then built up that rainy day savings buffer that's something you might be looking to draw on as the cost of living gets um gets tighter going forward um so i think it's really just trying to form that initial habit and um and going from there perfect thank you so much for joining us pleasure so thank you very much to all our guests this week danny it's you and laura in the hot seat next week yeah, and we're going to be joined by Tom Selby with his latest Pensions Corner. If you've got any burning pension questions, do email us podcast at ajbell.co.uk. Or in fact, you can email us about anything. We do love to hear from you. So next week's show will also feature Chris McVeigh from the asset management firm Octopus. He manages what's been the best performing equity income fund in the UK over the last three years. And Chris explains why he's hunting for dividends in some different places to a lot of other income funds. So make sure you catch that episode. Until then, thank you very much for listening. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.